All right, guys. So this is our second part of talking about the rhythms and the habits of God's people. And this particular section, we are going to focus on um, the practices of the corporate church. So when we are all the gathered church, if you will. Now, we don't have time uh, or just for the sake of time to keep this short, I'm not going to read a bunch of the passages, but if you'd like to, I would suggest going and reading particularly 1 Corinthians, um, especially 11 and 14, um, kind of highlight some of the um, ideas that Paul has about the the. Uh, church coming together. And one of those things that we would notice, um, and we see this, of course, in Hebrews and some other places as well, um, that there is an assumption of a weekly gathering. So it's not particularly like commanded or ordained, if you will, uh, but it's just assumed. So um, it's assumed that you come together and then there are some mentions of better and worse ways to gather, but there's not a ton of prescription of exactly what those are. There's sort of a variety of practices that we hear heard about. So 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. So that gives us both some instruction or direction on the one hand, and then also a lot of open-handedness um, kind of on the other. Let all things be done for building up, right? So if we kind of distill a lot of the different things that we see in the letters, what we would see in terms of those practices would be preaching, public reading of scripture, prophesying, tongues, singing, prayer, and fellowship. And then there's two more that we'll look at in depth called the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So what are um, the ordinances? Simply put, they are the practices of the church that are ordained by scripture. Ordinances, ordained. There you have it, right? Um, The Lord's Supper and baptism. Augustine called them a visible sign of an invisible grace. Now, from this point, there are two different strains of thought that are developed. First, the Catholic and then the Protestant. Um, So the Catholic, and there's kind of a variety, you know, in a spectrum even within those, but that covers the the big buckets, if you will. So the Catholic, within the Catholic view, they actually call them sacraments instead of ordinances because, excuse me, their belief is that grace is actually conveyed to believers through those practices. Okay. So then they've added, they've taken those two, the two that we just mentioned, and then they've added five further sacraments, confirmation, penance, marriage, holy orders, and last rites. Um, And so in some sense, the way that they, because grace is actually mediated through those practices, they do become in a certain sense necessary for salvation because they are the effective means of grace. They are the way that grace is transferred to us. Now, the Protestant view is different. The Protestant view does say these are, now again, we're talking about just the the first two, really. They are real means of grace, but they are not the exclusive means of grace. So they are ways in which um, grace is given to us, but they are not the only ways that that happens um, because they in and of themselves, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are not what produces the grace. Rather, it's the Lord working behind and in those things that produces the fruit. And so they are only effective for grace uh, by those who receive them in faith. So let's look more closely at baptism. So um when we, you know, are thinking about baptism and it being commanded, the first example that we will see uh, is not in the Old Testament, but rather at Jesus's baptism, right? And then we hear Jesus say to them at the Great Commission that they ought to go and baptize, um, making disciples um, of every nation. And then um, in Acts, we begin to see the practice of baptism 
practiced quite a bit, right? So in Acts 2, Peter says, the very first sermon, Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's, you know, kind of those two things go together in Peter's mind. Um, we see baptism practiced um, in Acts 8 as Philip uh, announces or proclaims the gospel to the Samaritans. Philip does that with the Ethiopian eunuch. He says, well, why should I not be baptized right now? And they stop and find some water and do it right away. In Acts 10, we see it with Peter and Cornelius's household. Um, that's a big change, right? Because the, the, these are Gentiles and are, are they to be baptized into our faith? Um, Peter says, well, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So in that case, the Holy Spirit actually fell in an obvious way or kind of filled them in an obvious way before they were baptized, whereas, you know, oftentimes it's the other way around. Um, and he commanded them to be baptized um, in the name of the Jesus Christ. We see that in Lydia, the Philippian jailer, the Corinthians. Galatians 3 says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. So um, that's a little picture of kind of what we hear about baptism. Now, what is baptism? Well, just ritualistic bathing in water with the belief that the visible sign signifies an invisible reality. Okay. Visible sign that signifies an invisible reality. Baptism, interestingly, is actually not uniquely Christian. Remember, John the Baptist was actually baptizing people well before the gospel came about, right? Um, Jewish converts underwent, so all Jewish converts underwent a proselyte baptism. So when they became Jewish, they had to uh, be baptized. There's the baptism of repentance that John the Baptist practiced. And then it's related to, um, potentially, to uh, what is still practiced in Judaism, which are mikvahs. And it's like a ritual bath that cleanses ritual impurity. And actually, a lot of the mikvahs have to use living water, which means streams or running water, because otherwise they wouldn't cleanse. So you can see that there's some connection there. But regardless of how it was practiced, baptism gains new meaning in Christ, right? So it's specifically commissioned by Christ. Living water is not needed, but we don't have those specific demands because we now know that Christ is the living water and it's needed only once. So if you were ritually bathing or bathing for ritual impurity, you'd have to continue to do that. But we only have to do it once because Christ is not only the living sacrifice, he is also the living water continuing to be our cleansing. So the symbolism now is not only the forgiveness from sins, but also the deliverance from death or purification in the sense of a new birth altogether or regeneration. Um, so uh, the gift, like a, a new birth, right? The gift of the Holy Spirit, the coming out of the waters in the same way as you might come out of um, your mother and be reborn. And so um, in that sense, you're also being uh, re-identified and new life identified with Christ, right? And baptism is presented as a one-time thing that is a form that marks the formal entrance into the church. And so because of that, for a long time in the early church, um, the, the church would require catechesis or instruction before baptism. In fact, in some practices of the early church, it would be as many as like three years, um, simply because uh, it marked, you know, such a, a big deal to enter the church. So, um, that is uh, the sort of the history of baptism, but there is something that comes about um, in the practice of the church, which is two different forms of the practice of baptism. So the earliest record is what we just read um, or kind of skimmed through in the New Testament, and that's a, what we would call credo baptism, so believers baptism. But as the church grew, so too did arise in pedo baptism, pedo as in child baptism of a baby or a child. Now, in the Catholic Church, um, initially, 
Uh, this it started off because, or paedo baptism started off because of the strong belief in the forgiveness of sins that was conferred by baptism. So remember, in the Catholic Church or in that in the sacramental view of things, um, baptism is an effective means of conferring grace. In this case, forgiveness of sins. It's like the baptism itself actually does something to us um, in the spiritual realm. And um, this is, they're actually, while you might immediately be like, oh, no, we don't say that. At the same time, there is actually something beautiful in it because um, it emphasizes um, something called ex ex apore operato, which is by the work performed, which we don't need to get into outside of the fact that it emphasizes um, the effectiveness depends on Christ, not on anything about the person coming into it. Does that make sense? So a there is a beauty in saying um, it is, this depends fully and completely on Christ's work, not on my work of coming to baptism with faith. So there actually is um, kind of a sovereignty and a beautiful a beauty in it, like I said. Um, and the reason that it became practiced so much was because infants were born sinful and therefore condemned due to original sin, right? So the idea is we ought to baptize them as early as we can if baptism gets them the forgiveness of sins. Now, the Reformed view, um, so this came about, you know, like in the 1500s, uh, the Reformed or the view of conferring grace was part of what the rebel or the Reformation was rebelling against, um, that it being the effective means of grace. But infant baptism actually was retained. So initially, the, re the reformers were largely um, infant Baptists, but they changed the reasoning for it. So they looked at the household baptisms. They said, let children come to them. And then um, Calvin and Zwingli created an analogy or saw an analogy rather between circumcision and infant baptism, the invitation into continuity between this idea of sort of being born into the covenant. Um, so that is that's kind of uh where they went with and then uh credo baptism began to surge again as it was reintroduced by the anabaptists which um created a huge uh controversy in church history as both the, as people would literally kill each other for mainly it was other people killing the baptists um but they they got so worked up about which way you should baptize that they would execute the anabaptists for uh practicing believers baptism which is mind-boggling um but a whole another lecture right so the reasoning for credo baptism or for the anabaptists to start practicing it again was because they're what they argued was there's no scriptural warrant for it or sorry for pedo baptism right we don't see that really in the new testament neither in terms of what is command nor are any infants mentioned outside of you know potentially the household whatever that means um it's an initiatory right or sign right to enter the church so what could that possibly signify in infants um can't signify regeneration it can't signify denouncing satan because they're too young um and then in every new testament case the um, faith precedes baptism right we just went through all of those and there is this relationship that's pretty clear between the belief, repentance, and baptism. So um, that's those are kind of the main reasons. And then, of course, historically, the, the, church, histor histor the church history reason is that in, um, the initial practice of baptism in the early church was predominantly credo until it kind of changed over with the Catholic church. So um, it's interesting, I think, well, there's so many things that are interesting, but isn't it fascinating to think about both of these scripturally based ordinances baptism and then what we're about to pivot to the uh, Lord's Supper involve very physical, tangible, metaphoric symbols that help us to understand with both our minds and our bodies what is happening in the spiritual domain.
And I think it's also interesting that there are two ordinances, one being initiatory one time, right? And one is ongoing and regular, kind of mirrors the Christian life, right? So the Lord's Supper, the other ordinance, of course, is the Lord's Supper. We know quite a bit about that um, because we practiced it in the Passover at Exodus or at the Exodus lecture, um, I mean. So it was in the context of that Passover um, supper or Passover meal that was the last supper in which Christ takes that matzah that's being broken for the sins of the world and saying, that's my body, right? And so... um, it's also called the Eucharist, which points to Eucharistia, Thanksgiving, or communion, koinonia, the fellowship that we have with Christ, the Lord's Supper, or you also hear it referred to as the coming to the table, right? Um, <clears throat> so there are four principal views of what exactly is going on in the Lord's Supper. One is trans, <clears throat> excuse me, transubstantiation. That's the primary Catholic view, primarily Catholic view. That says that the thing itself, the act, the substance of the bread and the wine is changed upon the institution, meaning, the, you know, the prayer over it. And it becomes in the spiritual domain, actually Christ's body and blood. So not only then does that first represent Christ's sacrifice, it represents it, connecting across time to Christ's sacrifice. And they're in some way when they take the Lord's Supper in the Catholic Church, believing that it is an actual propitiation for their sin in that moment. So that's transubstantiation. Consubstantiation is, uh, Lutheran's view is sometimes a little hard to parse out. Um, He doesn't like the implications of transubstantiation um, for a variety of reasons. So he calls it something like a spiritual union. So this is my body is to be taken literally uh, but it's not, the substance itself isn't changed, but it's still kind of a, a similar, somewhat of a similar idea. So we get a little bit further away from that with, um, the memorial view, which is put out by the reformers Vingley to begin with, um, and, and among other reformers who wanted to emphasize the humanity and limitations of Christ's body like ours. So they're emphasizing Christ's body cannot be physically present because Christ's body is like our body. It cannot cross time and space in that way. Um, And so it's simply a remembering or a memorial, a swearing of allegiance to God. But Calvin um, wasn't totally comfortable with that. And he argued for what we might call the spiritual presence, um, which is to say that it's memorial made the ritual a little bit too empty or too reliant on the physical world. Um, And so the spiritual presence is emphasizing that Christ really is present Um, when we take the Lord's Supper, but just spiritually, that there is something that the veil gets thin between heaven and earth. Um, And so it's a touch point between the physical domain and the spiritual domain. Um, We as Baptists tend to fall somewhere between the memorial and spiritual presence. Um, Sometimes I think the way that we present it on Sundays, uh, or at least at Eastside, can sound more memorial, but I think what we really believe is more spiritual presence. Um, But either way, we can believe and take faith, take on faith, that there is a real good that is done to us by practicing that we remember and uh, receive each week. There's something that really happens to us when we remember and receive. And so it's not something that ought to be entered into lightly as it represents the touch point between the spiritual and the physical domains. Um, so that is the Lord's Supper. And we can discuss on the Zoom uh, kind of what we think about all of those things. Now, what about the rest of the practices? Well, we're not going to have time to go into every single one. And we already talked um, about some of the work of the spirit ones like prophesying and tongues and the interpretation of tongues uh, last week. 
But the two main ones that I want to highlight are the preaching and singing. So we do see um, preaching referred to in the scriptures. Um, we see that like in 1 Timothy 4. Um, it certainly seems that in 1 Corinthians 2 as well, talking about, you know, bringing um not neglecting the gift that you have, but giving, sharing what you have been given. Um, also uh, not coming with lofty speech or fancy wisdom, but just proclaiming Christ. So preaching is certainly necessary and assumed. It is clearly marked out as a gift um, and as a gift that comes with power, but that power is given by God and we ought to respect it as such. So I think we simultaneously, there are two errors that we can make, and sometimes we make them both at the same time. Uh, we make too much and too little of preaching. On the one hand, sometimes we elevate and expect a unique outpouring of the Spirit in preaching. Um, and by that, what I really mean is, or what what we're actually looking for is a unique charisma um, and entertainment. Um, but I think that, uh, and that can make too much of um we wanting too much power, I think, um, in, in preaching. And on the other hand, sometimes I think that we, well, when we do, when we kind of are looking for that power, I would argue we're evaluating it by the eyes of the world. We're wanting it to be pleasing and pleasant to us. Um, and what we ought to be evaluating it by is by the power of the word. Right. And so that's one way where I think we need to be cautious. I think the other places that we can sometimes make too little of preaching by thinking that any of us can just get up and interpret the word by whatever is on our heart. If we're really evaluating preaching, not by the eyes of the world, but by the eyes of the word, and we remember that the word is given by God, then we ought to be very careful lest we belittle the word by thinking um, and think much in, thinking much of ourselves by thinking that any of us can just get up and communicate it or hold it out there. Preaching does have power. But power to what end? So the question we need to ask is, does our preaching restore and restory us as whole people? Um, and then singing is another practice uh, that we see historically throughout the church. Um, it's I think that it is fascinating to see um, the presence of music throughout the entirety of the story of scriptures. We have an entire book called the Psalms, which are just intentionally for singing. Uh, and what's so interesting is that brain science really supports music as a profoundly reorienting practice. It physically increases dopamine, uh, which increases our motivation, desire, drive, and creativity. It fires across both sides of our brain, which opens up new pathways and helps us to process things like trauma and so on and so forth. Um, and none of us need all that that science to know that music is an incredibly effective tool for processing and expressing our big feelings, right? Both negative and positive. Um, so it's a really effective tool for getting into our brain. And we all know this because there are certain songs that you just can't ever get out of your head, right? Like, I don't know, like, for example, how many of you were singing after the last time I taught, uh, we don't talk about Bruno on and on and on and on, right? Music gets in here. So we ought to then reflect really carefully on what we are singing, um, and what we are, um, yeah, what what our music is proclaiming um, and what we are allowing to get stuck into our head. So the question then is, does our music restore and restory us as whole people? And then lastly, we'll, um, and maybe I'll talk about this a little bit more in the third lecture as well, but there's things that we do, not necessarily in our weekly gathering, but we as a corporate body do. So I'm calling that what we do collective, the church collective. So that stuff like collectively stewarding our resources, finances, assets, time, 
Um, and to what end? We do that for the equipping of the saints, teaching and discipleship, also for evangelism and for mercy within the church and outside of the church. We collectively pursue holiness, um, like having times of repentance and gathering to pray and practicing the one another's. We collectively hold out the gospel, proclamation, mercy, contrast living, um, and we collectively work toward the true, the good, and the beautiful. So um, the, in all of this, let us remember the goal of the church is to be a changed people that practice the kingdom of God corporately, collectively, and individually, both for and before a watching world.